Hey everyone, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine YouTube channel or iTunes podcast thing, wherever you're catching this. This is coming to you from Hawaii, specifically Poipu on Kauai. Dude, your linguistic skills are top notch. Uh, So what we're going to do, we came here for the CrossFit Level 1 MD training certification thing. We're going to talk about our experience there, our takeaways, and then we've got uh, some questions that you guys have submitted uh, to the media Barbell Medicine Dot com email address and we will get to those and hopefully you guys find this informative so first off uh, do you want to tell everybody what this CrossFit level 1 MD thing was uh, yeah. well what did you think it was going to be and then what was it yeah so um, I think our impression of it was that they're after the recent kind of shake up with the way they're running the, the CrossFit games um, redirecting some of their resources towards this health initiative um, and so this was kind of part of that so they were They've been doing a series of these uh, throughout the country and inviting physicians to come attend this thing. And our, I guess our expectations may have been along the lines of um, maybe educating physicians about, uh, about CrossFit or about fitness and the implementation of it into clinical practice, providing some sort of uh, training from that standpoint. Yep. Um, when when uh, Glassman came by and he was asked specifically about the goals of this, from his perspective right now, his goal seems to be networking physicians more in this in, in their community uh, to see maybe something creative, maybe something bigger kind of emerges out of it through, through collaboration. And so um, it ended up being maybe a little bit different than that, and you have an interesting perspective having gone through the level one well, 10, 11 years ago. Whereas yeah. I've been exposed to many CrossFitters and have friends who are into it and own gyms and stuff, but hadn't necessarily been through the, their their training course or anything like that before. So, yeah, what was your what was your impression there? Well, so the this is the level one training course that you get if you want to be a CrossFit trainer. Let's say you wanted to open up a gym, a CrossFit gym, or you wanted to coach at a CrossFit gym. This is like the minimum requirement that you need to have passed this seminar and the test at the end of this seminar to yeah. to do that. And it is the same as it was. 11 years ago with the uh, except for the addition of this fourth definition of fitness which is like this they say it's the sickness wellness fitness spectrum, fit, spectrum. yeah and uh, they didn't have that before because no one had thought about it I guess but that's the only thing that's different I mean even a lot of the verbiage is the same which I think ultimately uh, is reflected in how well practiced the lectures are I mean the the lectures and the the, the uh, way that they they say or communicate the ideas are all very, very tight, and I think it's just you know lots and lots of practice doing the sure. same thing. I thought that the seminar was going to be more geared towards physicians mm-hmm. because if you think about it, their doctors are not going to go be trainers or coaches, and and even and if that was the goal, I think that's missing the mark because you don't want your doctors trainers to be coaches necessarily i mean we we are but we did that before practicing up to the level of their exactly exactly there are less doctors so we need to get them keyed up on why uh resistance training why high intensity interval training why lifestyle changes in general can improve health outcomes and so what you would want at least in our view is a course that educates the high level trained professionals um, on what are the that the risks are fairly low, the benefits are fairly high, here's the specific data on this stuff, here are specific conditions by which, where, where things are more complicated, um, here are things that you may be doing that are not you know, best practice based on current evidence, and, here's how, and that's, I think, how you make the biggest difference um, in getting the doctors up on this mm-hmm. versus teaching them how to do a med ball clean, which I'm not saying is bad. I would love if, you know all physicians in the, the United States and then subsequently the world were exercising, you know, because I think that or would make... At least they have this exposure to it since we know yeah. one of the barriers to them counseling on this stuff is lack of experience on their own part. Yeah, so when you look at the data on, like, why are, you know, 10%, I think the, I think the actual number is that 12% of primary care physicians even know that what the current guidelines are, uh, the physical activity guidelines for adults that were originally published in 2008, later in two, uh, modified in 2010 by the ACSM. American College of Sports Medicine. So it's twelve percent of primary care physicians even know that they what they are, mm-hmm. and less than half of them who know what they are are recommending them. Yeah. And and so even knowing what they are, meaning that you're kind of keyed up on this stuff, the reasons they cite for not having like uh, communicated it to their patients because well I don't even exercise myself, 
uh, I don't feel well knowledgeable, you know, or, or well educated in this particular topic. I run out of time. These are like the common yeah. reasons why they say that. Um, I saw. So I, I reviewed this literature for one of my secret projects that I'm working on right now, and and that paper it should be pointed out. The Walsh Walsh it's like was, is from 1999. Okay. So it's been a little while since they did that. So I actually found a more recent uh, paper. I forget the name of the author. It was from uh, 2018. Is it better? And <laughs> And, right, so that was what I was hoping. I was like, maybe there's been some like leaps and bounds improvement. And this was uh, primary care counseling on exercise in their patient population, specifically uh, patients with high high cardiovascular risk. Oh yeah, so, and it was something like 58% compared to like 45% or something. So it was not a huge improvement. It sure, suggests sure. there's still plenty of room for improvement. Uh, but interestingly, looking at barriers, uh, a, a, a bigger review on barriers. One of the Besides the, the time piece, which is difficult to modify, lack of ex uh, understanding, lack of experience, which can be modified, one interesting one was that there are some physicians who, when surveyed, believe that there is that, that, that there is not sufficient evidence showing yeah. that this sort of thing provides benefit, or that they, yeah. they are skeptical that it will provide benefit to their patients, which is just mind-blowing and suggests sure. a huge avenue by which this kind of thing can be influenced. Well, it's just as mind-blowing, though, as saying that exercise cures everything all the time. This is true. So, I mean, you know, if you give a thousand people the same exercise prescription, you know, two-thirds to three-quarters of them are going to get better in some metric. Uh, about 15% are going to have no improvement and then maybe 5 to 10%, you know, or whatever the balance of that is to 100 are going to get worse, actually. And so the... And that's whatever the standardized intervention that you're exactly. providing is. Regardless of, it could be the most theoretically optimal program. Sure, sure, sure. And there are going to be people who don't respond. Yeah, due to the inter-individual variances and in, in how people adapt and just, you know, the and nature for, of disease. For so. people who are interested in this topic, as, as we are, and who may remain skeptical that there can be such an intervention that might not work for every single person that it's, you know, that it's administered to. You can go to the most, one of the recent uh, editions of the Frontiers in Physiology oh, yeah. journal yeah. where they talk about inter-individual variation in response to exercise. There's like, yes. it's like a, it's like a, a, a theme issue with multiple uh, articles. Yeah, there's uh, 56 on articles. On that topic like a, within yeah. it. So go there. Um, so anyway, overall takeaway uh, what, what we'd like to do is have a CrossFit Barbell Medicine <laughs> certification. I mean, it, it, the only way that we could we would be useful in benefit, you know, symbiotic sort of relationship would be that we would get to use more of their resources, their platform, their audience to expand our, our message, and that they could use our very niche skill set to do what they want to do. I mean, I, again, I think if you want to get to the doctors, you want to get... Uh, you know, he, Greg estimates that there's 20,000 crossfitting physicians in the United States, and that's the place he wants to start as far as getting them keyed up on this stuff. The, the, the solution to getting them to be, we'll, we'll call it exercise virus, vira, <laughs> day, to, to basically... Be thought viruses, basically. Yeah, yeah, thought, yeah, what the idea is that, you know, they're in their own practices and they get to disseminate information to their colleagues, you know, peer-to-peer. Um, uh, the idea would be that you need to educate them on what the evidence says, uh, what are some sort of complications that we see, uh, what are the objective markers that you're looking for. Just a whole bunch of stuff that you not is not at all addressed at the CrossFit level one because it's not for that population. It's for trainers um, who want to train CrossFit, and which is fine. That's just it needs, it's a separate deal. So the way I would do it. Have barbell medicine, a CrossFit barbell medicine cert, where it would look similar to our thing right now, except where we get more resources, so we'd get to do, it would speed up our, our sort of development process of the seminar. In, in that, I think we could get CMEs approved faster. We could get additional staff trained faster. Yeah, I mean we that's get, kind of the when you when you mentioned what you thought the goals should have been. That's basically a description of what we do at ours in terms of educating. Yeah, yeah, it's just on the, the evidence and the data on common comorbid diseases and, yep. and, and things that affect a lot of people and how they should be managed in, in clinical practice and in a coaching practice. We kind of address that whole yep. that whole thing that would bring that would bring a physician as up to speed on this stuff as can be accomplished, I think, in a matter of a, a you know, a seminar like this without reading thousands and thousands and thousands of papers. Yeah, so anyway, hopefully we'll uh, be talking with Greg uh, pretty soon, and maybe it'll be a collaboration. Maybe not. You know, worst worst case scenario is nothing changes, and we just uh, keep growing the way we've been growing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> keep living our life. So, uh, I don't think that I'm going to convert to CrossFit. As yeah, far as it doing, was, it, it was kind of funny. So, so uh, you know, going around the room, and they're like, you know, who's been who's been doing CrossFit for more than five years, or three to five years, or two to three years? Yeah, we're like, like we we're just waiting until the end. We're like, well, we actually don't, but. Yeah. 
Oh. You know, so it's, but there were some interesting things coming away from it uh, um, when we were talking about kind of fitness in general and yep. definitions and so so you know although we don't necessarily do it or or prescribe uh, proper to most of our clients who are more interested in, in strength focused training but we are definitely fans of more conditioning um, sure. for for most people so so this is kind of an interesting subject when when you look down there are different models and definitions of fitness and you talk about like for example starting the first model with like the 10 physical characteristics that everybody's familiar sure. with right yep. and so one of the things that we were kind of batting back and forth between ourselves was the idea that they at least uh explicitly they seem to want to place somewhat equal emphasis on all 10 of those things right it's like a 10 band equalizer but they're all it's like they're all max yeah or, yeah, to the extent that they can be sure, sure. So, but whereas you know our approach uh, or or what we were discussing uh, between between ourselves afterwards was more like well we kind of tend to look at evidence on this stuff. For example, the very large robust data set that there is correlating strength with mortality. For example, mm-hmm. similarly, there's the same thing with cardiorespiratory fitness, quote unquote conditioning, endurance, stamina, whatever characteristic you want to label it, and mortality. Whereas you can't, the same can't necessarily be said for, for something flexibility. like yeah. flexibility. I don't even know how you measure agility and correlate it with more t- mortality. It's just a T-test. It's a T-test. You have your like 75-year-olds running cone drills. Or something. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So, so, you know, the one that the, the places where, you know, we have the biggest potential to influence morbidity and mortality being things like strength, conditioning, power even, there's there's mm-hmm. evidence on that kind of thing in terms of rate of force development in older folks, arguably being at least as, if not stronger, correlate in some situations than strength. Yeah, if and you so measure strength as a hand grip dynamometer. Sure, yeah. yeah. Sure. And, and so that's kind of where we prefer to focus our, our, our resources more than trying to, you know, equally maximize all of these things, but just yeah. an interesting conversation. Yeah, I like I said, I think I, I told you during the lecture, I, I don't dislike the fitness definitions and just the way of getting there and sort of parameters you're looking for that improve are maybe just a little bit different and you know but that's we are our difference of opinion is by degree not necessarily like that's dumb and so i think my my biggest sort of message about the crossfit seminar again having gone through it twice now spread by 10 years or so um if you don't like crossfit and you're on the internet speaking negatively of CrossFit, I would advise you to stop because they're not your enemies. Your enemies are the people who don't believe that exercise can help, exercise or training can help improve health outcomes. Your enemies are the people who believe in TheraBand and, you know, crystal healing and herbologists. Like, th- those are the people who you would, you know, potentially expend effort trying to have these high-level th- high theoretical discussions, maybe. But I wouldn't just go say, well, CrossFit's stupid because sometimes they do exercise that I don't do. Like, <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, but they train with barbells. They revolutionized the equipment industry for all of us. They brought more people into training than anybody else. They're actively trying to do uh, good things in the community. And just because we disagree on the methodology that we'd like to use, I think that, that we have more in common than, uh, than we do uh, than, than disagreements. Just... From a from a broad broad perspective, um, anyway, uh, the last thing this is the postscript. To get the doctors, I think you'd have to have peer to peer learning with a lot of data, and and I think because people who are going to wholesale reject the data, you know, and just say, "Nah, this is useless. We're just gonna conjure the stuff up, you know, by ourselves." They are a little more fringe, but they're already bought in. You know, to this idea on some level, they don't necessarily care that uh, what the data says because they're using evidence, you know, uh, the experience, their own experiences and and uh, stuff like that. But to get mainstream docs to buy into this, you get, you know, your urologist who's been <laughs> steeped in doing the same thing for twenty years, who may happen to do CrossFit to get them to be converts. I think that you need to take a more traditional approach, and I think we're both trying to do the same things, you know, as far as CrossFit Health and, and us, mm-hmm. other than I have no political, I don't care about the political stuff, and I don't care about um, uh, the the sugar thing as much in, uh, uh, outside of the outcomes that manipulating carbohydrate intake can have, but I'm not on war against carbs. Yeah, I think that came up a few times. There was a few little points of disagreement where we actually raised our hand and posed 
pointed questions. The funniest <laughs> thing was mine was related to pain and injury, and yours was related to nutrition. I think that's just yeah, a funny I thing. Think, I think we just like felt bad for the other. Yeah, person. we're like, we're I like know, Jordan sitting so here squirming about. <laughs> about this, I know you're so triggered. Car- I got you. Carbs causing diabetes thing, and you were, you know, hearing hearing me squirm about you know uh, pain injury stuff, pain, pain and injury and stuff like that. So, but you know, we had some had some discussions and. It was it was in general fairly well received. I think it wasn't just like, get, you know, get out of here. (laughs) So, so I probably wouldn't recommend people going to the level one unless you want to train CrossFit or you're really interested to know more about CrossFit. I mean, if that's your thing, you just want to know way more. Then this is the place to go. If you are a healthcare provider and you want to get the latest information that's up to date on how lifestyle change and resistance training stuff can improve your patient's outcomes and how to recommend that and everything else. That's what we do. That's what we do. So would we like to have CrossFit's audience and resources and everything else? See. But, you know, we'll have to see if that's something that comes comes down the line. But Greg seemed to like us. Seemed like it. Yeah. He's like, let's work together, man. Let's do what we <laughs> So we'll see. All right. So. Uh, oh, yeah. We also wadded. Oh, yeah. We did two wads. <laughs> That was my first and last wad for, for a little while. Yeah, we had enough. Yeah. I just liked that the last one, so the work, the <laughs> first workout was thrusters and burpees. What was it? 15 thrusters, 10 burpees, three rounds. Something and like and then the second one was like an AMRAP, like uh, med ball cleans and <laughs> yeah, sit-ups. Felt, felt a little silly. But, so, you know. Yeah, whatever. The funniest thing was you and I were just like talking to each other in the corner doing this thing, and people were like, you know, going crazy, which is great. That's fine. But both of us were like, we got to like train tomorrow. We got to go train tomorrow, yeah. Yeah, but you, which you did well. So if you see the other training vlog, you'll see that we actually did. Performed fine the next day. Yeah, maybe even above average. Yeah. Uh, okay, so this is a good place to stop. We're going to bring you a short commercial break about the Barbell Medicine Seminar since we've been talking about it. And we'll be right back with your questions. All right, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine YouTube channel or iTunes podcast situation. I don't know where people are getting this thing from, but this is the second part of our uh, Hawaiian adventure <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Bro, bro, brocation. Um, so we're gonna uh, answer some questions that you guys submitted to your uh, to the media barbellmedicine.com uh, email address. I curated these last night, thinking they were some good questions that we could talk about. So first question is from Pat. Pat says, "I have re-injured my hamstring at the iliotibial band insertion, uh, which is Gertie's tubercle, for the second time in six months. I am on the twelve week strength." A program at this rate it's going to be a 52 week program it took me four months last time to get back to normal i re-injured it the same way uh, on the concentric port part of the deadlift right after breaking the floor do you have a certain regimen etc i should follow uh so i'll just start this out it is highly unlikely that you can tell with any reliability that you've re-injured your hamstring at the uh insertion it's anterior insertion on your leg it could be a number of different structures and ultimately, it doesn't matter what it is unless you ruptured a tendon or revulsed uh, a muscle at the myotendinous junction, in which case you would know because you'd have a deformity, you'd have bruising, usually if it's large enough to matter. So you have pain somewhere, which you didn't necessarily say. So you're experiencing pain from something. Pain is the experience, not necessarily the stimuli. And it's in- interfering with your training. Uh, in general, how I manage any painful experience that's not related to an acute trauma that would have some, you know, surgical management or uh, immobilization management, meaning you have a fracture or you have a, you know, torn tendon that requires repair or something. In general, how I do this is find a similar movement that you can do that doesn't cause you to have that pain experience or is tolerable, meaning that yeah, it doesn't get worse as you warm up or add load or whatever. So if you can't pull from the floor right now, you can probably pull from above the knee, mm-hmm. certainly. And if you can pull from above the knee, maybe you can pull from right below the knee yeah. or something like that. But if you can't do either of those, uh, you know, maybe you can leg press. Like you can you can work down. the. You can do good morning, maybe a partial range of motion. You could do leg press. You could do maybe sumo. Yeah, maybe sumo. So there are multiple different options you're going to try to find something that's trainable for you. And the good thing is if you're not going to go compete, it doesn't matter if you can do a conventional deadlift from the floor. I mean, really, we prefer it uh, just due to our own biases to, right. <laughs> for that training. Was, I think that was the point that I was going to make is if you plan to compete, then, yeah, we the long-term goal, since you're not going to compete, you know, week two after this thing necessarily, but Speak the long-term you, goal should be to get you training productively, tolerating the positions and the movements well so that you can train them with sufficient volume and intensity to, to go perform well at your meet. But if you're not, 
you know, competitive lifter uh, in the USSF where only a conventional pull from the floor will do, right? Because yep. perhaps you could tolerate a sumo. Or if you're not going to compete at all, then just recognize that the height of the barbell off the floor is the completely arbitrary consequence of standard plate diameter. Yeah, which has changed over time anyway, but now so, we've all agreed to be 450 millimeters. So. Right, so so if you have a 450 millimeter plate diameter, uh, you know, just imagine if it was a 500 millimeter plate diameter and that had been the standard all along, the bar might have been a little higher, sure. and, you know, so just you could train from there and be perfectly productive, get very, very strong, live a long, complete life, <laughs> yeah, all those right, sorts of things, and that's right, right. just totally fine. So. Yeah. And if you can't find any pulling variation or posterior chain dominant-ish, if you want to call it that, variation that you can do given your equipment restrictions, then just don't do it. And I would find another squat that you could potentially do. But I think... And or what submit a consult. Oh, yeah. We have guys. Yeah, sure. You <laughs> yeah, right. The uh, So the, the last thing I'll say uh, about this is trying to diagnose it, pinpoint it as, okay, it was my, uh, one of these tendons or uh, the ligaments or this particular muscle or whatever that is injured, that doesn't help you. In fact, if anything, it may hurt you because anytime that you have a pain experience, you're going to attribute it to that, okay? And, yeah. so, and then you're thinking about it. And so I would say, I'm not sure what is causing this, but I have discomfort in this particular area. It may not even be from that area. I'm going to try to find a way that I can train or exercise productively around this. Yeah, we see this a lot with people who have back tweaks or, or, or knee tweak or whatever, yep. and they attribute it to their SI or their QL or their psoas or their... Yeah, be highly their, specific. Their, their multifidus or their... <laughs> yeah, my deep paraspinals sometimes act up under load. Right, and, and we see this all over the place, and it's all just not helpful, and so we just say, just scratch that from your, yeah, your divorce assessment it. of the situation, yep. and just, I have nonspecific low back pain, which is usually what it is, or yeah. I have knee pain or shoulder pain, or instead of, you know, the uh, you know my, my lateral meniscus is hurting because yeah. that's not how it works. Yeah, because that just means you're hyper focused on one particular thing that yeah. may that usually is not helpful. Yeah. All right, moving on. This is from Gabby Rosansky. Lately, when I wear my Inzer belt uh, for a heavy set of deadlifts, sometimes it happens on the squat too. A lot of pressure builds up either below or above uh, my midline. Uh, it's starting to feel super uncomfortable after the set. I feel very burpy, like. Not like burpee, but like birch. Burpee. Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, Singultus is, is, is hiccups, right? What, okay. is, what is burpee? All right. Belching, I guess. Belching, yeah. <laughs> uh, I feel very burpy, and the air is trapped in my upper GI tract, although I've never been able to properly burp, so it comes out as a small, unsatisfying bubbles and gurgles. Uh, all right. <laughs> Not sure if it's related to the placement of the belt, uh, if it's just between my ribs and iliac crest, or what I eat, drink beforehand. I usually don't eat right before, but I often have pre-workout caffeine. Any suggestions would be appreciated. Uh, I mean, this sounds just like a little reflux if it's uncomfortable, if you feel a burning sensation. But the burpee thing um, is not necessarily unusual. I would... There's a couple things that I would just make sure that are not happening. So thing one, I would make sure that you're not wearing your belt too tight. Tighter isn't better. Better is better. Mm -hmm. The idea is that the belt shouldn't move while you're squatting or deadlifting. Uh, but it also shouldn't be compressing it on you so much so that you can't <clears throat> get a big breath. Uh, one of the signs, like if I'm a little thick with three C's, the belt will cause me to feel like I'm getting a little like GERD reflux mm -hmm. or burpee i like the burpee kind okay. of descriptor so make sure that your belt's not too tight this is probably a bigger problem for folks who are carrying around excess adipose tissue uh, just in general but anyway so that's the first thing and how you can kind of prove this to yourself if you don't wear a belt and it goes away then you're either wearing the belt too tight or the way the belt is actually anatomically sits on you is uh not doing any favors for these particular symptoms now are these symptoms dangerous I don't necessarily think so, but if it's really uncomfortable and it's compromising your ability to train, then I would just go beltless because it just doesn't matter. Um, unless unless you can, the only way you can train is with a belt. The other thing I would make sure is that you're not eating um, anything probably within an hour and a half of training in case you do have a little reflux and that may be upsetting you. So usually I tell people two hours prior to training should be your kind of cutoff. If and you can particularly carbonated beverages too. That yep. could be an issue for this. Like if you're having a, a, a monster or something before you go training, yeah. that can make people a little burn. Yeah, chocolate, peppermint oil. What is the, 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 the whole list? Spicy foods, cigarettes. Yep. They don't smoke and have like a monster as a pre-workout <laughs> in case you were doing that. But so in general, I'd make sure the belt's not too tight. I'd make sure it's in the right position. Again, it's not moving while you squat or deadlift. And 
Um, if you loosen it up, you don't have these symptoms, then you know, problem solved. And if you have a lot of excess adipose tissue or significant amount, losing weight tends to help. Yeah. Um, and if you have other symptoms of reflux that occur at other times, then and it sounds it reflux. With that too. Yeah. yeah. Yep. All right, moving on. This is from Ben Watson. Let's say I'm eating roughly five hours apart, so three meals a day, and I eat enough high-quality protein to trigger a muscle protein synthesis response in each meal, let's say around 30 grams of protein. At three meals a day, that would only equate to about 100 grams of protein a day, yet as a 180-pound male, I've heard the recommendations issued around one gram of protein per pound of body weight, so around 180 grams of protein per day for me. Can you explain what is wrong with this scenario? Yes, I can. So if you only ate... 30 grams of protein per meal, three meals a day, that's 90 grams of protein. Unfortunately, you know, for for this, you're like, this is like a get you. Get, I got you. People do this to us all the time. You have to eat other stuff. <laughs> Carbs, fats, sources that have protein in them. And so your protein intake has to allow for these trace proteins. Uh, so there you go. Additionally, the other thing that this... I, we get this question a lot too that I think it represents is uh, an excessive focus solely on the significance of a muscle protein synthesis response. Yes, as if stop. Is, as if that is the only reason <laughs> just stop, that we yeah. should be consuming dietary protein, uh-huh. which is not the case. We use those amino acids for innumerable other functions throughout the body. Everything sure. that your liver does involves protein synthesis, basically. Yep. Um, and so there are tons of other places that this stuff needs to go and be used for. And so, you know, I would not say that um, stimulating muscle protein, that, that, you, that you would live a long and healthy life solely by stimulating a muscle protein synthetic response two or three times a day. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess you'd probably hit the required amount of protein that you need to maintain, like, albumin to not production. Because yeah. Yeah, it's so, 46 grams or something a day. So yeah, if you, there's, just, there's just a whole lot of other things that protein is important for yeah. and, and, you know, uh, in terms of health, and so yeah, yeah, we all like to be jacked and strong, but it's about more than your skeletal muscle here. Yeah. So let's say you're eating 3,000 calories a day, and you're getting, you know, let's say 300 grams of carbs. Every, you know, 30 to 40 grams of carbs has five grams of protein in it, approximately. So just 10 times five is another 50 on top of your 90. So now you're at 140. And let's say you got 60 or 70 grams of fat. I don't even know what the total calories end up being, but then yeah, you got another. Any, if it's pure oil, you're not getting any protein, but if it's a nut, nut butter, something like that, you're going to get seven grams of protein. You know, so now you're, you're starting to get closer to this one gram per pound, and then you're kind of like, oh, man, why did I ask that question? It's like, yeah. Well. <laughs> and it, it's not that it's a bad question. It's just that I, it, you have to go further. You have to pl- describe in a way where you can only get 90 grams of protein a day while eating 3,000 calories a day, you know, and yeah. still getting your generating the muscle protein synthesis response that you deem to be so important. Because what happens is, if you don't allow for trace proteins, well, then your uh, protein intake from high-quality sources that contain all these essential amino acids and high contents of leucine, valine, isoleucine, the BCAAs, those will go down because you have not made enough room for the trace proteins. We don't eat bowls of macronutrients. I Speak we, for yourself. We eat foods. That's actually the cereal that I love. <laughs> Some frosty macros. Kellogg's macros. Yeah, that's right. That's next. Don't. Yeah, we need to trademark that. All right, this is from Justin Ching. Next question. Uh, when doing cardio on GPP days, would it be a benefit or detriment to my goal of getting stronger on the main lifts if I perform my steady state cardio work at a higher RPE than the prescribed uh, six to seven? Uh, so, like eight to nine. I mean, yes. Next question. Well, yeah. <laughs> You're asking if doing a if doing physical activity that is at best. New, uh, has a neutral effect um, potentially on, on strength and muscle gain and at worst a uh, contradictory inhibitory uh, you know sort of adaptation um, uh, sort of outcome you're asking if doing that at a higher intensity that's more stressful more fatiguing on something you're not good at already if that could have a potentially negative effect on your strength outcomes the answer is yes um, and we don't typically prescribe high intensity uh, aerobic training Unless people are aerobic athletes, meaning that they they're a five k person, like five k at threshold or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so you're, they're doing going to do tempo work and they're going to do um, distances that are a little longer than five k at fairly high intensities. But that's their sport of choice, and that compromises their strength improvements. But they're still going to strength train too. Um, so somebody who's really interested in getting um, stronger, gaining more muscle mass, yet wants to develop some uh, you know better than rudimentary 
aerobic fitness level, well, we think the best way to do that is by doing low intensity steady state that's usually below, far below your, uh, what is called termed your lactate threshold, but it ends up being, you know, 60%, 70%, uh, not of your VO2 max, but just a max heart rate. It's like 120, 130 beats per minute. And then occasionally you'll do high intensity interval training to kind of work that anaerobic side, which you are already working with your strength training anyway. But um, we don't think that doing a bunch of tempo work or or uh, interval uh, aerobic interval work at very high intensities is super useful for people who are not endurance-based athletes. It's kind of an interesting parallel with a lot of the ways that we prescribe resistance training in general. Interventions yeah, sure. where yeah. we can you can compare that kind of threshold concept where, say, all your training consists of very heavy sets at eighty you know, four to 86% or something like that yeah. versus the more quote unquote polarized training mm -hmm. kind of approach where you accumulate most of your, most of your, you know, base volume at a, at a more submaximal intensity and then you get periodic exposure to the higher stuff. So it's, that's kind of, that's kind of the way we like to train both on the resistance training and the conditioning uh, side of things. Yep. All right. Next question this is from uh, Hayden Wheeling. This is probably my favorite question, the whole thing. Uh, how would you alter the American College of Sports Medicine guidelines? This is the uh, physical activity guidelines for adults that we talked about earlier. Uh, so how would you modify them, assuming you had the power to do so? Mainly interested is if, if you change the weekly 150 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic exercise and two to three times a week resistance training prescription. I can guess how you change the flexibility and neuromotor <laughs> development components. So I'll, I'll link the uh, actual phys physical activity guidelines for adults in the description and also the link to the ACSM sort of refinement of that model. Um, Austin, do you have any just off-the-cuff changes that, uh, that you would make? Well, we talked about this, this a little yeah, bit. Yeah, this is an interesting topic. And so the first thing is that uh, for those of us who train, you know, do our style of resistance training or may do some conditioning, it's easy to point fingers and criticize and say these people are idiots and this is they have nothing to offer organizations. us they have nothing to offer yeah, they don't yeah. know what they're doing and I think that's short-sighted um, and I think that you know when you look at the actual rates of, uh, of engagement among the public in regular exercise it is not particularly high yep. uh, the data suggests that it's a little higher than we might expect yeah it's not that particularly for resistance training it's like you know it, um, among older adults it's like 10 percent or something it's like not very much not yeah. very much right right um and so you know you if if, if you can imagine can you imagine a, a world where imagine the, the world. overwhelming majority of adults met the 2008 physical activity guidelines for Americans, uh -huh. we would be in a fantastic place yep. if people actually did them. Even yep. regardless of what your criticism may be of the idea of 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity exercise or 75 minutes per week of, of uh, vigorous physical activity to reach a target of, of 500 to 1,000 met minutes or whatever, all this, yep. all this kind of stuff. And, and, and so we'd be far better off if people did reach those things. The issue is that just putting the guidelines out there is not necessarily enough and you're gonna, still going to miss a lot of people if your guidelines are too rigid. So if you say the only prescription that you know, this is the correct way to train is going to be that you are going to low bar squat. <laughs> right. You know, or this is the way it must be done. Yeah, if you you're narrow gonna, You're, yeah. you're going to miss a huge swath of the population. So yeah. I think we have, we have developed an interest in the literature on adherence to exercise and the factors that predict a better adherence uh, or compliance to, to, to programs. And so I think that would factor in quite a bit to our, uh, to our ideas. I think the guidelines that have been proposed in terms of the volume and intensity of, of uh, conditioning uh, and resistance training exercise, they do have an evidence base for those things improving outcomes. Yep. But I think the adherence piece is something that might be missed in terms of allowing for inter-individual variability both in response and in approach to, to prescribing stuff. Yeah. Uh, I think if I made changes to it, I would make it more specific, mm -hmm. like just as far as the recommendations. So basically how you have to tease this apart from either PAGA or the ACSM guidelines. You see their initial recommendations in like the abstract, and then you have to go hunt down in this fairly large document. How do I actually do this? And it's the oh, 08 to 12 reps of all the muscle groups. And, but they don't ever say like do leg press. They don't ever say like do squats. They don't mm -hmm. say, ever say any of that stuff. And so I would actually have sample programs. It, what it would look like, it would be like three pages of here are the actual recommendations, you know, like a, a, a based on um, if we can, there's different data sets on people uh, like 
different ethnicities, different uh, uh, body type, uh, as far as like how big your BMI is. You know, you, I would have different recommendations. Mm -hmm. Like somebody with a 60 BMI, I'm not going to say, yeah, you can squat and bend. You know, I'd say they'd probably be machine based at that point. But and then it would be just a series of programs. It, so, start, so here's here's base program. If no can do correct, on this, correct. then proceed it's to an step algorithm. two, proceed to step three. Yeah, it's a training algorithm. Yeah. And so it would be very specific, and they'd be pamphletable, meaning that I'm, I'm trying to get the doctors off the hook as far as... Well, they could just trace and find where... Here's where correct, you are correct, on this thing, correct, and correct, here's correct. a reasonable place for you to start, but the goal is for you to progress in this direction yeah, so, towards the main program. So my ultimate goal would probably be somewhere three to four times uh, resistance training per week uh, with... Uh, uh, the amount of conditioning uh, being related to other factors, meaning do you have any medical com com comorbidities that I know respond well to uh, cardiovascular training outside of just um, activity in general? Do you have a significant amount of weight to lose? You know, all, all and, what's, and what's your current kind of conditioning status? You know, if you're in that, yeah, exactly. that high-risk sub-8-met mortality range and we, yep. we need to do a little extra to get you above the 8-met threshold or if you're a yep. poor responder to aerobic trainer you need a little more training volume to get there. Yeah, exactly. So it'd be, it, again, it'd be like an algorithm like assess, assessment and then keep going back. You can figure it out. Mm -hmm. But I, I would just say just blanket three times a week of what I would consider resistance training that can look a bunch of different ways depending on your, your flavor of it. Uh, and then conditioning would be kind of, uh, you'd start at like two days per week of you know, the stock recommendation would be like a low, low intensity or moderate intensity steady state, and then adjust from there based on uh, different factors. Yeah, and so I think that's just one thing to make clear is when you say low intensity, uh, something like low intensity from our perspective, yeah. that is often more um, in yeah. the, is it what, I mean, when you compare it to the, this, the, the exercise science definitions sure, sure, sure. for exercise intensity, our low intensity is their moderate to high intensity when you go by METs. Yeah, yes, yes, Low yes. intensity exercise by METS is like gardening. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But low intensity based, you know. Uh, if, if you're you cycling at six to seven RPE, that's, that's high intensity well, on a lot of the things. Yeah, you know it just I mean? depends who you, sure. again, it's kind of like what's low carb in the literature. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I think that the problem with the guidelines are that they're not specific enough. And then, it, it interestingly, like when they do try to specify, like with the sets and reps, but the, where's the program? It's like super training. It's the same thing. You get all these th th this discussion, but where's the practical implementation? Yeah, I think probably the the, the organization's hesitance to put that in there is that they're had the, you know they they probably don't have a citation they can uh, they can attach to it. To yeah. Say, see this paper where this program was implemented with. Well, how do you how do you start? Well, here's our expert consensus panel. Maybe we need to do that. This is our expert consensus position. Barbell medicine's position stand on physical activity guidelines for Americans. Yeah. <laughs> BRB, go and write that. See you guys. No. <laughs> All right, uh, next question is from Nick uh, Dia, Dia Giacomo. After heavy deadlift days, I sometimes notice red dots across my chest and sometimes around my eyes. After a few minutes on Google, I believe they may be petechiae. Is this something to be concerned about? They usually clear up within a day or two. I wouldn't be worried about it. Yeah, if you start getting uh, spontaneous yeah, right. petechiae or spontaneous bruising or bleeding from your gums and stuff like that, yeah, that's a reason to go see a, a doctor and potentially referral for hematology evaluation or something. But sure. Just after the other thing, yeah, happens to all of us. Not a big deal. Yep. yep, yep. The only time I'd worry, I wouldn't worry about it, even just the having the experience of petechiae uh, post training. But if you feel like, like if it's happening to somebody who's got high blood pressure or that's poorly controlled, or somebody who's got other metabolic conditions that are poorly controlled, it's not that you're going to have them stop training or alter management of training because of that. You're just saying, hey, look, man. Go get checked. Yeah, and there are other things we probably need to do, like lose weight, start conditioning, alter the diet, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Not just ignore the, these. What is the result that you get it more than normal because of these other medical comorbidities? Now, if uh, I'm talking to this guy and he's got a waist of 36 inches at uh, 200 pounds, I feel pretty comfortable that it's probably not that, unless you have got uh, a poor, uh, got dealt a poor hand genetically, and you know other things, but. Um, just, just wanted to throw that in. Like, you know, if you're significantly overweight and you're getting a lot of petechiae, it doesn't mean stop training, but it does mean that you could probably improve the relative incidence uh, of petechiae if you were um, a little lighter. Okay, Tim O'Donnell says, huge fan of you guys. Even if Jordan trims the top of his mustache, I just don't like when it connects to my nose. You know, I don't want like a like the the, the connection. Sure. It's it's like if you have neck hair that connects to your chest hair. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, you need, like, a division, right? I, I feel like you need, like, a, it's like a, a 
a border patrol. All right. Um, huge fan of you guys, even if Jordan trims the top of his mustache. Quick question. What's your take on standing desks? I've been using one recently and I've really enjoyed it, but not sure if it'll mess with my training by creating fatigue in my knees or back. Uh, well, I don't think that it will increase the fatigue in your back or knees because we're pretty good at standing just in general, and I'm going to guess that you start leaning on the standing desk at some point. <laughs> well, just because we're opportunistic resting animals, yeah. you know, we figure out ways to expend the least amount of energy when possible. Um, I don't think that there's convincing data that standing desks improve anything, period. I know that if you stand for more than six hours per day, your risk of inguinal hernia appear, appears to go up has no idea they're the what is it what was it the pound year they, they try basically when we have uh, somebody who comes in who's smoking we try to figure out like their pack year equivalent so how many packs per year do they end up smoking well they had like a pound year lifted they try to into their exposure to yeah, yeah to figure out if it was like lifting and they the only thing they could come up with that had a pretty good correlate was how much you stand per day hmm. yeah it was like if over six and a half hours per day increased risk of yeah so i'll, I'll link the video below for when i talked about inguinal hernias but because the data, the studies there. But anyway, uh, I don't care if you have a standing desk. I don't think it's going to affect your training at all. Just like I don't think it's going to modify anything at all. But if you like it, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that you'll, to to whatever extent it might make you feel different from a fatigue standpoint early on, you would you'll adapt fairly quickly to just that being your routine. Yeah. Most people, you know, when I'm running around the hospital on a busy day, I'm on my feet for almost the entire day and still get to home and train. It's fine, just because I've been doing that for. Yeah, for a long time. It's like mailman GPP. Yeah, exactly. So you can adapt into that kind of thing. I, I mean, there is some some data on like the relative differences in, in caloric expenditure between sitting all day and standing all day, and it's, sure. it's more than you might think. But I don't, I don't think that we have, as you said, compelling evidence that that results in drastically different weight outcomes or something yeah. like that. But if it makes you feel good, it doesn't cause you significant problems, yeah. and you like it, then cool. But See, I wouldn't worry about it. There you go. See, if it, if something makes you feel good, the relative risks are low. <laughs> then we're kind of like. Cool, man. Knock yourself out. Yeah. But if it's not, if it's hurting and you, you're willing to spend the money on the desk. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> if, it, if it has a high potential harm to you or others, then I think we're less willing to be like, knock yourself out. Yeah. All right. Uh, can you comment on the repeated bout effect uh, for intermediate lifters and strategies for stalling lifts? Uh, let's talk about the repeated bout effect for yeah. the first one because the second second portion is like, hi, please describe programming to me in its entirety. Yeah. So let's let's be uh, explicit with our with our definitions. So in the literature proper. Repeated bout effect refers to the adaptive response to exercise such that uh, muscle muscle damage is attenuated on subsequent, uh, subsequent exposure to the exercise. So lots of big words there. What that means is on your initial exposure to an exercise stimulus, um, whatever that stimulus might be, but particularly higher volume or higher velocity or higher intensity or uh, high eccentric component, uh, exercises or some folks who uh, have uh, myopathies or certain genetic conditions can predispose them to getting more muscle damage. And muscle damage is theorized to be one of the main contributors to post-exercise delayed onset muscle soreness. Um, and so there's a whole host of factors that play into this. And even after exposure to your first, uh, first bout of that exercise, your body neurologically, from a muscular standpoint, connective tissue standpoint, jumps into action, adapts to that, uh, to that exposure such that even if you were to do your next training session, there's been measures of reduced muscle damage on subsequent exposure to the exercise mm -hmm. up to months later, even yeah. with no intervening exercise, which yeah. is very, very interesting. Yeah. So if you, you know, this is why we get progressively less sore when we expose ourselves to things periodically. But it's just interesting that you can do a bout of exercise get a certain amount of muscle damage response, you can do the same exercise, uh, you know, the same uh, stimulus. You can do it months later and see a little bit less than you did. It, of course, the more frequently you're exposed, the better you're able to tolerate these things. And that's kind of how we've described it before, is how well you tolerate exercise. Um, and so as it pertains to programming, this is where, uh, there's, I mean, there's freely admit there's been some confusion around this in terms of the way we've described this in terms of the the desensitization and, and that kind of thing versus yeah, the protective response. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think mechanistically, I'm, I'm attributing a lot of the decreased adaptation that is seen, which again is varies amongst individuals. Amongst individuals, that some of that is due to a similar kind of process. Yes, exactly. There's definitely. I, I actually recently saw even in, I mean, there's, there 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 are. Data sets indicating, for example, when we 
look at, you know, everybody's worried about muscle protein synthesis and fractional synthetic rates and, and mTOR signaling and P70S6K and all this kind of stuff. There's similar stuff for that signaling getting attenuated or decreasing from as you get, the more trained you get. And so that's kind of where this desensitization idea kind of came from is observing that the more trained you get, uh, you get a less robust response from the signaling standpoint to an equivalent stimulus. Similarly, um, it's the same phenomenon we see in anabolic resistance where you see a, le a decreased response to anabolic stimuli being protein or training, particularly yep. in folks on average who are older, but hey, younger people can have uh, that just from an inter-individual variability. They, they might not respond to training as well. Yeah. Uh, I think that you use RBE and the theory, like the knowledge of it being a thing in training by leveraging it to your advantage, meaning that if you were trying to improve somebody's training outcomes, you wouldn't necessarily want to switch to all new variations that had no similarity at all, and therefore their RBE would be abolished because they would get very, very sore. This compromises hypertrophy outcomes. This compromises um, uh, uh, or basically changes the total fatigue generated per week uh, greater than you would predict. So even if the reps were the same and the sets were the same, the relative intensity of exercise was the same, but all the exercise variations were different with minimal uh, uh, similarities between the previous exercise and the new exercise, the fatigue would jump by leaps and bounds, and you might not want that. Chasing muscle damage as an outcome unknown of itself is probably not a good idea. Correct, yes. And uh, that being said, if you um, have exercise variations with uh, low amounts of similarity to stuff you've done before, then the increased muscle damage... Uh, likely actually compromises the improvement that you see. I've heard of quite a few lifters talking about having an optimal training weight, I think, meaning that uh, more productive training outcomes happen at a particular body weight for them versus a higher or lower body weight, even with a similar level of lean body mass due to them having better leverages while carrying more adipose tissue. Is this a thing, or is this maybe a byproduct of training while in a surplus of calories that people attribute to being a little fatter? What are your thoughts on optimal training weight, and how would you suggest finding your optimal training weight, assuming that it's a thing that exists? Yeah, I actually just don't think that it exists. I think people will have different responses to certain training interventions and attribute all sorts of other things that were going on as contributors to the success, even though the programming just happened to be right at the time or their training environment or their mental uh, mood state, you know, or motivations to train, train resources just happen to be optimized. I think this is, assumes that somebody's not drastically underweight um, or not drastically overweight where it actually compromises their leverages. So, or their training response, or you know, that being overly adiposed, having overly adiposed, having, yeah. having excessive body fat can yeah. actually compromise your response to training, which is one of the reasons why we don't like yeah. uh, that kind of thing. But yeah. I mean, I agree that I don't think it really exists, and, and really, it's entirely framed by what your goals are. And so, this is where you know, when we get asked uh, how much, how much, uh, how much what, should I, what should I weigh. And we're like, well, how strong do you want to get? You know, and it's like, if you want to be the strongest possible version of yourself, you're probably going to have to weigh more than you think uh, to to get there. Yep. Um, and you have to be okay with the consequences of that because you know, just because you're super super strong, in no way means that you're you know healthy. So, yep. I think that in competitive strength athletics, so bodybuilding or not power, uh, bodybuilding, but powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting, and CrossFit. You have clues from the previous training generations as far as what people, how tall people were, what they weighed at certain body, uh, uh, in, in certain weight classes, and you sort of feel figure out what where you fit uh, into that, and then uh, and it's going to be different across all different sports, um, and most time for weight class sports, people end up being a little heavier than their desired weight, uh, like like platform weight, and then will uh, lose a little bit of fluff. That's just the practical thing as far as, you know, is that better or worse? It just is. It just is. It's just a, yeah, that happens. And it'd be very difficult for me to say that, you know, uh, as a 93 kilo lifter, that if I walked around at 91 versus 94, that my performance out, you know, uh, and training outcomes would be significantly different outside of what happens super tentorially. <laughs> like, Maybe because of what you've been told. Or yeah, oh, certainly. Believe, Social learning. about the stuff too? Yeah, oh, I'm a little heavier. I'm going to be strong today. I, I do know that when my belt feels fits a little too tight that th things go poorly <laughs> in general so um yeah i think it's based on your expectations previous experience and then that's just a practical takeaway sure optimizing your lean body mass within a certain weight class is probably useful but take cues from uh history yeah on that hi jordan i was at the seminar in brooklyn which by the way was awesome to experience and learn uh, would recommend 10 out of 10 thanks thanks uh while i was there I recall uh someone asking about developing food sensitivity 
which I think you replied with, that's not typically not what happens. It's uh, most likely a different underlying issue. So with that being said, I bought some Way RX and it gives me the same issue anyway does, which is stomach cramps that are really debilitating over the course of 45 minutes or so. I've never had an issue with Way until last year when this started happening. Is there anything that I can do or should I just try a pea or plant protein? I really want to be able to incorporate some Way in my macros, but this issue makes it negative more than a positive. Also not allergic to any lactose or milk based products. Yeah, that's strange, man. Well, I just, there's no good physiological reason for that. I mean, if you don't have a dairy protein allergy, which would manifest as a protein allergy to any... Like if you can drink a glass of milk, it'd be fine, and then you take a little whey. Yeah. You know? I, wonder, I wonder if maybe it's a dose kind of thing or something could, like could that. Could be, or, you know, I mean, I've not heard of people being, uh, having a, a bona fide dairy, uh, dietary uh, uh, allergy to... Um, like stevia or one of the gums mm -hmm. that we use, but or maybe one of the flavorings, you know, natural flavor. That's all theoretically possible, although I just haven't seen it. Yeah. Um, I think what I would do if you can't tolerate a whey protein um, and then you need a protein supplement in your life to get enough protein in, then I would recommend egg protein or beef protein first over you and a vegetable-based protein powder. But if you don't need a, whey, a protein powder because you eat enough protein otherwise, then you don't need a protein powder. There you go. So do you have to take protein powder? Nope. It's food. Yep. Just food, dude. Uh, all right. If a lifter is supposed to hit one at eight for weeks to come and one at eight starts to feel like eight and a half, then at nine, how do you address this issue? Maintain the weight for last week, decrease it, change any training variable during the week, anything? Can a low stress week with no single at eight and a slight reduction in volume work as well? Uh, all kinds of things can work in this situation. But I think we've talked about this a little bit recently in terms of the idea that I guess has become pervasive that you must force reg like you must force weekly progression at all costs. Yeah, which is not Why? true. Why? Uh, and and both of us actually have fairly recently ourselves had periods of time where things were either not moving up. Uh, week to week on our main lifts, or actually the month of July for me saw my deadlift numbers going down week to week before yeah, they surged again like crazy in, in, in August. Um, and so these kind of things happen. And so I think that if you are agonizing over the fact that you perceived your squat single to be an eight and a half instead of an eight, I think that's majoring in the minors here, not like of huge significance. Sure. Uh, if you're adding weight week to week that's turning things into nines and nine and a halves, then you're then you're overshooting. You're not doing the and program. Unless there's something else going on in terms of like maybe you're not preparing for the session the same way, in terms of like your psychological state, maybe your arousal is different or whatever is going on going into the lifts, but uh, that's not following yeah, that's not following the, the, the program. And so ideally, you know, at some point your adaptation will manifest and things will trend up kind of organically. Yeah. Yeah, the idea, the idea is that you're trying to get the right amount of stress and subsequently fatiguing stress uh, that drives the desired fitness adaptations that you want. And if you're delivering the incorrect dose of stress because you're just trying to add weight to the bar every week, because you know, which is not the explicit instructions within the program, then that's not doing the program. YNDTP. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Related question. My question, if I have... Three sets of five at RP8, do I reduce the weight on sets two and three if it does not feel like an RP8 anymore? Or do I grind through it because the weight is set on the first one and should not be changed? For me, it shifts from an RP8 to a nine or 9.5. Yeah, so you should take the weight down so it's approximately an RP8. Yep. Uh, this is assumes that you're resting the same amount between sets, yep. that you know you didn't actually overshoot the first one. In general, RP8 sets are repeatable, in general. Uh, and in a practical sort of recommendation, I would always repeat the weight uh, for a set that's supposed to be at eight for the second before, set before you change it before I change it yeah just because I assume that it's going to be the same because yeah. I'm my own hype man if we're seeing drastic changes then oftentimes there's something else going on in terms of rest period issues which again we don't want to extend too long either uh, work capacity or conditioning issues insofar as you're able to tolerate these repeated efforts during a particular training session yep uh, maybe a difference in psychological approach to the bar maybe a little technical issue manifested that made a rep harder than it needed to be um, those are those are common things, but very often when people have been coming from a very low volume 
training approach with 10 plus minute rest periods and they come and they try to do this and they're like, man, this is, uh, yeah. you know, things are getting harder quicker. Yeah, so then that's a perfect things. opportunity to kind of standardize as much as you can and take the weight down for subsequent sets as needed. And then all this stuff kind of comes out in the wash in the long run as you adapt and get better kind of intra, in, interset or intra workout kind of uh, recovery capacity, work capacity kind of stuff. Yep. Uh, all right. Last question. It's from Jamie Douglas. I've been powerlifting with my husband for about nine months. We were both former athletes and have been weight training for over 15 years. We are not new lifters by any means. Uh, my question is about hormones. Uh, would there or could there be a big change in hormone levels, blood sugar, or insulin due to the amount of weight we train with now? For example, back in January, I struggled to deadlift around 305 pounds, and last week I was able to hit 385 pounds at RPE 8. Must be on a barbell medicine training program. <laughs> My bench went from 135 to 185 at 8, uh, and my squat from 275 to 320 at RP8. My body weight has changed from 170 to 181 now, which is great for my weight class, being that I am only 5'4". I have noticed I am more fatigued, and I'm just wondering uh, if this has thrown off my hormones at all or if I just need to sleep more. Thanks. Uh, well, fatigue is a has a broad differential diagnosis, uh, and at the top of that, hormones are not usually within the first four or five. The first would be how what are your sleeping Sleep. habits, yeah. and then psychological causes. You know, you go down the line, you'll get to hormones, especially like thyroid hormone, and uh, and I guess if directly if you had a history of diabetes, then you could you'd worry more about blood sugar changes. Um, just to answer your question about blood sugar and insulin levels, I would not expect your blood sugar to change at all due to the weight that you're lifting now compared to previous, because it's the the relative stress to your training, your trainedness, your training history is the same. Uh, basically, it's just because it's gotten heavier doesn't mean that the effort is much, much harder for you now. However, there may be changes that reflect the cumulative adaptations that have happened since then in terms of changes in lean body mass. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Had over the course of those 80 pounds of adaptation right, right, right. Or, or other factors, but not necessarily just the number the weight. of plates on the bar. Exactly. So still, I wouldn't expect your blood sugar, your fasting blood sugar or postprandial blood sugar to have changed unless you've gained a lot of body fat and subsequently made yourself more insulin resistant, which doesn't sound like, although an 11-pound gain at five foot four i don't know i'd have to know more information um your fasting insulin levels again probably unchanged unless there was a significant change in lean body mass or fat mass uh, but also not real relevant to fatigue not relevant to how much weight is on the bar and not relevant to you being, being tired so other hormone changes again it really depends did adipose tissue fat tissue go up lean body mass did that go up or down? We would expect it to go up if you're training and well, so let's, let's let's talk about this. What if she has? Uh, it's a she, right? Yeah. Okay. What if she has read on the internet that uh, this could be related to her cortisol? Yeah. Well, it's not. You talk about testosterone to cortisol ratios at our seminar. Yeah. So typically, so so it depends when you look at training, a training event, a stress event that do exercise. Um, people like to talk about the hormonal changes to that and this neuroendocrine response. And I find that it's mostly just misunderstood by the people saying that. So at, directly after training, your testosterone goes down, cortisol goes up. Uh, later, those kind of flip. But this is all just part of this sort of repair, remodel, um, recover sort of pathway that occurs. Uh, testosterone levels do not change. Um, like resting testosterone levels do not change after becoming trained unless you lost a lot of body fat. So that's not a response that you get. Just like growth hormone levels don't change um, unless you've changed uh, uh, really at all. In fact, growth hormone is just a signal of energy storage. Um, basically, if you exercise a bunch and burn a lot of stored glycogen, your growth hormone levels are going to go up. Just like if you fast between meals, your growth hormone levels are going to go up. Yeah. But that doesn't do anything in the adult unless you have either a ton of extra growth hormone being put out or no growth hormone, mm -hmm. which you have if you like. Uh, yeah, blood sugar problems. And, and all these hormones vary wildly throughout the day on various uh, yeah. of rhythm unrelated to training. Down. But the, I think the underlying point here is that the idea that you have developed an endocrine pathology yep. as a result of training is yep. highly, highly, highly unlikely. Yes, and, you're, and resistance training inducing overtraining syndrome has not been described in the literature. They've tried, it's just not there. And it when people talk, say that, oh, you've been training too much and your cortisol levels are too high, a citation just desperately needed because that's not been shown either. Um, again, most people have very poor sleeping habits when, they, when we talk about fatigue or they have some sort of psychological issue that needs to be addressed, uh, whether it be anxiety, whether it be depression, whether it be you know, any, anything else. Um, that's and, and just a programming consideration in terms of the amount of fatigue that you're oh, sure, yeah. from training is the other thing that 
think about. Yeah. If you're if you're if you're pushing, if you're if you're uh, you know, we talk about acute and chronic workloads and stuff like that as it pertains to injury. But let's say that over the course of this period of uh, time training, now your your workloads have gone up to the point where hey, every session RPE is a way of, of, of kind of uh, it's one of these risk factors for for injury we talk about as well. If every session is becoming an RPE ten session on the whole, then yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if you if you started feeling not great from that. You know, so so yeah. programming. Just similarly, I wouldn't feel be surprised if you did just fine. Yeah, like just because it just depends. But I, I don't think it. You, you said it beautifully, very elegant, ah, very elegantly. Yes. That it is highly unlikely you've developed an endocrine abnormality, pathology, secondary training, unless again the gain in adipose tissue has been significant. That's really the only thing that, or, or you had some, God forbid, uh, cancer that suddenly developed just in the same time period that's causing. Or, or you developed, yeah. Or or similarly, you developed an endocrine pathology that just had like exactly. all of a sudden for some exactly. reason you develop Hashimoto's not training not related because of training. So anyway, enough to scare the crap out of you, but it's probably <laughs> fine. And I would I would look at many other things first before I would um, uh, do this large endocrine workup, unless I had, unless our medical interview uh, yeah. revealed otherwise. In any event, hey man, we're we're going home today. Yeah, we are. So hey, thanks for tuning in to the Barbell Medicine YouTube channel or our podcast wherever you're catching this. If you could leave us a review over on iTunes, that would be great. If you comment below on the YouTube channel, help us out on the algorithm. That would also be great. We'll catch you guys next time. Mahalo.